Good morning, I'm John, and this is the Daily Wrestling News Show for September 16th. If you remember your 90s wrestling, and someone asks you where Paul Heyman's loyalties lie between WWF and WCW, you probably would say Paul E. fell on the side of the WWF. And there's definitely evidence to back that up. But what if I told you that Paul Heyman, unintentionally as it may have been, did more to help swing the Monday Night Wars in favor of WCW? So how did Paul E. and ECW help WCW take over the Monday Night Wars? Hey there, if you're listening to this, then chances are you love wrestling. And if you care to continue the conversation with me, John, and other listeners of this show, then I invite you to join the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. Just search for Daily Wrestling News Show or go to facebook.com slash groups slash wrestling news show and click join. We cannot wait to meet you there. The group is brand new, so if you're one of the first to join, don't be afraid to say hi. Now, on with the show. On this day in 1995, ECW held Gangsta's Paradise from the infamous bingo hall on the corner of Swanson and Rittner in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise was blowing up the airwaves, and ECW's Gangsta's, New Jack and Mustafa, were making waves in ECW since arriving on the scene from Smoky Mountain Wrestling earlier that summer. The event was originally set to revolve around these two, but when Mustafa missed the event, Paul Heyman did what Paul Heyman does. Grab a pen and a napkin from a local diner, plug in another warm body, tweak the story just a bit, and somehow manage to put on a hell of a show anyway. But the Gangster's Paradise cage match that main evented this card has little to do with my hypothesis of Paulie's influence on WCW and the Monday Night Wars. So let's take a step back. Paul Heyman and ECW, while dead set on making their own very unique mark on the wrestling landscape, had tangential ties to WWF. While by no means the WWF's developmental organization, there was a working agreement between Vince and Heyman that often led to talent on loan at ECW, whether as a favor to Paul or to get some experience and benefit Vince and the WWF. And when WWF signed away to Colt Scorpio, there was an agreement made that helped keep ECW afloat. Because it's well known that while ECW never lacked for talent development or creative storylines, money was always an issue. According to Heyman, ECW had an agreement in place with Tommy Boy Records. Every time Scorpio appeared for ECW, his Tommy Boy theme earned ECW $1,000. So when WWF signed Too Cold Scorpio away, beyond losing a top talent and former four-time television champion, ECW was losing out on cold hard cash. So a deal was struck for Vince to pay ECW $1,000 a week for signing away Scorpio. And that fee is believed to have continued far beyond the usefulness of Scorpio or Flash Funk if you prefer. While $1,000 a week sounds like nothing in terms of today's wrestling finances, it played a significant part in ECW's production budget 25 years ago. Then there was the 1997 ECW invasion of Raw. For one night in February, ECW arrived in the Manhattan Center to take over an episode of Monday Night Raw. While it was a one-off for WWF TV, it was another clear example of the unofficial but friendly working relationship no matter how many times Jerry Lawler would refer to them as extremely crappy wrestling. Oh, and did I mention that this Gangsta's Paradise card saw the first appearance of stunning Steve Austin since his famous WCW firing via FedEx? While he couldn't wrestle for the company, 
there didn't seem to be any issue with him appearing on camera and venting some of his Texas venom for the WCW organization. Boy, was it entertaining. But I'm making a counterpoint to my argument at this stage. It seems like ECW was clearly more closely tied to WWF than WCW. So what about my assertion that ECW actually helped WCW more than it helped WWF? That's because ECW's imprint on WCW wasn't a conscious decision. Paul Heyman and ECW didn't intend to help WCW, but they most certainly did. ECW had already helped continue the development of performers like Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Dean Malenko into marketable stars. In fact, if you're a big fan of Guerrero and or Malenko, their series of matches over the ECW television title is no doubt near and dear to your heart. And they were among the first wave of talents scooped up by Eric Bischoff as he took control of the WCW roster and began building the ratings giant it would become. But it was on this day, September 16, 1995, that ECW introduced the broader wrestling world to extreme lucha libre, with the ECW debuts of 23-year-old Psychosis and 20-year-old Rey Mysterio Jr. In the penultimate match of the card, these two treated the Philly crowd to a 10-minute education in Lucha 101. By today's standards, the match absolutely still holds up as very good, but in 1995, their aerial acrobatics and chain combinations were something new and special. In anticipation of the craziness that was about to unfold, Joey Styles apologized in advance that he might find himself at a loss for words, and on a couple of occasions he was. When Psychosis hit what today we would probably call a corkscrew moonsault, in which he covered more than half the ring to land on Mysterio, Styles could only muster, I wouldn't know what the hell to call that. And knowing they were performing in the land of extreme, the two young lucha stars made sure to live up to the name. When Ray found himself on the floor and Psychosis hit the far ropes to prepare for a suicide dive, Ray quickly grabbed a chair and made sure it met Psychosis' skull as soon as he sailed between the ropes. That one earned an, ay Dios mio, from Styles, and the fans were on their feet to stay. While he most likely did not have the access to master seamstresses that he does today, Always with a theme in mind, Ray's blue, red, and yellow ring gear looked like a possible nod to Superman, which was never more apropos than when he hit a springboard plancha and flew through the air to take out Psychosis in the second row of rowdy fans. As Psychosis stumbled back towards the ring, he made the mistake of climbing towards the top buckle. He never made it past the second one, however, as Ray springboarded himself from the second rope into a Frankensteiner that would be enough for the three count. It always makes me chuckle when I read articles recalling this time and the five or so years that followed, the ones that go out of their way to mention that Eric Bischoff did a better job at showcasing the cruiserweights than Paul Heyman. While Easy e had three hours of Nitro, two hours of WCW Saturday Night, and eventually another two hours of Thunder. As a New Jersey-based ECW fan, I got an hour per week on the MSG network, sometimes pushed by overtime in a Rangers or Knicks game, and sometimes preempted entirely by the CNN book club or some other garbage. Forget about the fact that ECW would often introduce these talents to the world, only to have WCW pluck them away the minute they created a buzz. How can you feature someone who might be working elsewhere before you're done editing and airing their third match in your company? And that brings us back around to the question, how did ECW help WCW swing the Monday Night Wars? 
Well, for starters, they did so by unwittingly playing the role of feeder system to WCW. Jericho, Benoit, Malenko, Saturn, Raven, Juventud, Psychosis, Mysterio, and so on. I'm not one of those guys who says Bischoff raided the ECW roster. You can't really raid a roster when no one has a long-term deal and some even had trouble getting paid their per-appearance fees. But there's not much of an argument that ECW didn't give these future stars their first big-time exposure. And perhaps more important than that, in a world dominated by giants, I would argue that ECW was a major player in giving Bischoff and WCW the courage to feature the smaller guys. Yes, WCW had previously had a light heavyweight division, but it came and went in under a year. ECW proved that the smaller guys could steal the show with regularity and gave WCW the confidence to bring the idea back, then almost fully stocked the renamed cruiserweight division for them. So while the NWO was making the wrestling business absolutely blow up, their biggest stars weren't exactly big on what's often referred to as work rate. And while work rate isn't always the most important thing, when you boast an extra third hour over the competition that you're trying to knock down a peg, someone's got to fill that third hour and be entertaining while doing it. And when your biggest money makers are showing up to the building without their wrestling gear because they assume they can get over with a little haha segment for the fifth week in a row, someone's got to go out there and actually do some of that, uh, what's it called? Oh yeah, wrestling. That's where the cruiserweight division became the mostly unsung heroes of WCW's rise to dominance in the Monday Night Wars. And if you're going to point to a few special moments that helped make that division and style cool for mass consumption, one of those moments was most definitely the introduction of Psychosis and Rey Mysterio Jr. And it happened on this day in 1995. This has been the Daily Wrestling News Show for September 16th, 2022. We'll see you next week.